it's a bit mysterious to me just how the studio manages to continue to be so creative and so supportive of this great group of filmmakers through that period, even though their budgets are being slashed left and right. But it happens. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. Everybody loves Precode Warner Brothers, but they weren't the only studio in town. I talked to Dave Kerr of the Museum of Modern Art about this month's retrospective of early films from Fox. Plus, we'll talk about the recently completed TCM Film Festival with Nitrate Diva Nora Fiore and with Ben Modell, who also has a new Kickstarter project involving a woman comedian. So from archives to cable channels, keep up with what's new in old movies. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. TCM Film Festival just took place in Hollywood, April 26th to 29th, and following it on Twitter and Facebook, I felt like a proud podcaster, watching Friends of Nitrateville being part of the show, including Ben Modell, Rob Stone, Rodney Sauer, and J.B. Kaufman. We'll talk to Ben in a bit, but first, we'll get an attendee's report on the festival from Nora Fiore, proprietor of the popular Nitrate Diva blog and Twitter account and I guess by now our regular TCM Film Festival correspondent, since this is her second year telling us all about it. The theme was powerful words. It was all about writing, writers, depictions of writers, poetry, which was a broad enough theme that a lot of the movies I saw had a a strong tie into that, but I, I didn't really realize it until the end. Like, for instance, my closing screening was... A Star is Born on Nitrate, which is a print I had seen several years previous at Nitrate Show. It was actually the first Nitrate print I ever saw was that one of A Star is Born. So it was lovely to be reunited with it. And on the surface, that doesn't have a lot of connection to writing. You know, none of the main characters are writers. And yet I was, you know, there's there's these shots of a screenplay throughout it. That The first shot, you know, it goes from a script into the film. And then the the end is shown on a screenplay page. So it's it's got this wonderful connection to the written word that is not tremendously well known as an element of that film, but it tied in really nicely. And the more I think about these other films, you know, the written word, I mean, how many films from that era have letters in them? So many of them have letters. I mean, you could almost pick any film at random and it would have, you you could justify that connection. But some of the, the, one of the subgroups was uh, poets. And for instance, they showed the Raven, uh, the, the sixties version, the Roger Corman one, which I just, I love that film. 
it's a campy favorite of mine. And to tie that one in even more to the poetry element, they had somebody come in and read The Raven beforehand, do this very nice dramatic reading of The Raven, which was done dead straight and serious as a nice counterpoint to the film, which is a burlesque of, of Poe and all the gothic elements in it. My festival was bookended by nitrate. I started with a nitrate print and I ended with a nitrate print. So I went to the opening night screening of Stage Door, which was a beautiful nitrate print. It, there's so much that glitters in Stage Door. So the nitrate made that so luminous and delightful. Plus the thing I find I notice a lot when I see a film on nitrate is hair, is the definition of of every hair in somebody's scalp or the shine of somebody's hair. And Ginger Rogers' beautiful blonde do in that was, was really uh, just like lightning on the screen. It was a, a thing to behold. All this, as I mentioned, all the sparkly dresses and the, you know, the sparkly top hats and nightgowns. Uh, that film has such a glitter about it. Uh, the other thing that really stood out to me about the nitrate was the scene where Ginger Rogers and Adolf Manjou are in his penthouse and he's putting the moves on her and New York is below and she says it looks like a beautiful lady all dressed up and ready to go out on the town and it sure did on that print it was it was very beautiful to see the other thing I noticed a lot was the cat again the hair the fur <laughs> so luxuriant it was making me miss my own cats at home that's how felt how close at hand something I noticed a lot with nitrate is how it has almost this three-dimensional quality that sometimes you have to remind yourself that you're looking at an image that's not right there. It's, it, it brings it closer. I know at the festival last year, Martin Scorsese came and talked a little bit about some experiences he'd had with nitrate. And I was glad to hear he mentioned the same thing, the way in which like faces almost seem to have a, a quality that goes beyond the screen. Like you could reach out and touch them. So I'm I'm not totally losing my mind when I say that. Martin Scorsese thinks so too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of him, he won the first Robert Osborne Award. I did not get to attend that ceremony, but I was on the red carpet asking questions of people who came by. I did not get to ask him a question, but he did, you know, shimmer right by. You know, me and my friends got to see him and applaud him, and he, you know, he smiled at everybody. What a what a great uh, what a great person to have received that award. I can't think of anybody who's done more. And, and last year, as I mentioned, he came and inaugurated the the nitrate series at TCM by introducing the man who knew too much and talking about some prints that he had seen that made him realize what was so unique about nitrate. And I know a, a lot of his funding is what has made it possible for the Egyptian theater to be able to show nitrate prints, which everybody is just over the moon about. I got to see all four nitrate screenings last year, but only two this year because there were there were a lot of choices this year. It was tough. Yeah, I was looking through what you went to uh, on your Twitter account. Uh, a lot of midnight shows, it looks like. I did. This was the first year I've been able to go to both midnight shows, which I'm very proud of. Uh, it seems like uh, there, you know, in the past, it's always been, I tell myself I'm going to go to both, but I only get to go to one. And my first year, I didn't get to go to any. So there were, the two this year were The World's Greatest Sinner, which is this weird, unsettling, barely seen cult film directed by the character actor Timothy Carey, in which he plays uh, an insurance salesman who has delusions of grandeur, decides that he is a god on earth and starts this bizarre cult where he he convinces people to follow him, tells them they're going to live forever, and uh, decides to run for president. I will not comment further on that. <laughs> um, 
Thank it, God oh, those things only happen in the movies, right? Yeah, you know, it's it's stranger than fiction sometimes, truth, though. It's one of those films that is 50% terrible and 50% really fascinating. I mean, on the one hand, it's impressive that this character actor was able to throw in his own money and do something that is this weird and memorable. I mean, it, it, it definitely has a... Uh, a provocative element about it that seems visionary in a way, but on the other hand, it's just so, you know, it's so thrown together and it's so strange and, and laughable. I mean, the, it was, it was a good screening. I was definitely thinking twice about whether I should go to it because it did seem like a very dark movie, not like a movie everybody would feel comfortable laughing at, which is the kind of movie I like best in a midnight screening. I like a movie where I, I have, I feel no guilt about going in and chuckling at it, that it's a, uh, you know, a film that is campy that probably the people who are making it were chuckling at it when they were making it. Like the movie we saw um, a couple years ago was Gog, which is this bizarre 3d uh, robot futuristic who done it with flamethrowers and Herbert Marshall, which I, you know, no, nobody felt bad about laughing at that one lovingly, you know, with all of its 1950s extravagances. This one, I think we were, was more nervous laughter with the world's greatest sinner, but it was a, a, a memorable event and a, a film that was certainly unique is something you could say it, it, it was uh, unlike anything else I saw. It was, uh, it's kind of like, if I had to describe it, I would say it was like Ed Wood made a movie about Charles Manson or something. <laughs> it had that kind of amateurish, really over-the-top, overly heavy, overly preachy in many ways. But on the other hand, there is something haunting and memorable about it that I think will not leave me for a while. And I was very lucky to have some friends who get really into this, um, uh, the Cinebeth and Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. I give people's Twitter handles uh, that Miguel and Beth, they made all these fun little trinkets, including little goatee beards. That we yeah, I saw the picture. To look like the character from the movie. It's great how many people get into the midnight screenings. You know, you know that the people who are there are really want to be there because we're all jet lagged and tired and saw five other movies that day and probably didn't eat, uh, you know, regularly. And yet we're, we're all there having a great time so that, you know, you know, that's the core uh, th that's the real diehard cinephiles. And the second midnight screening was Night of the Living Dead, which we we got lucky because Edgar Wright was supposed to be there. He had to cancel due to some visa issues at the last moment. But he said on Twitter, I promise I'm going to send you a replacement who is equally qualified as me. And he really did come through because Simon Pegg was there to ah. introduce. And he was he was delightful. He was talking about uh, some time he'd spent with George Romero and how he, he spent the best day of his life goofing around uh, and playing zombies while George Romero was indulgently, you know, looking on and, and encouraging him. And that was a good one. That, you know, that is certainly not a movie anybody feels okay laughing at. So it was a very different tone, I think, from the usual Midnight Screening in that it was very gripping. It was a little bit more tense and serious than a lot of them were, were punchy. And it, it was great to see that film on the big screen. It's It's such a an illustration and how to do a lot with a, a little. So who else did you see at the festival? What programs did you attend? Well, I, I, when I'm going to TCM film festival, I tend to try to prioritize the special guests. So this year I was lucky to see Marsha Hunt, who is a hundred. She's a, an amazing woman. I know Eddie Muller describes her as the most exemplary human being he's ever known. And I, <laughs> You know, after spending 10 minutes in her presence, you definitely do feel that this woman is is radiating a kind of goodness that you wish there was more of in the world. Um, she was delightful remembering a film from 1944 called None Shall Escape. So that was part of the 
the discoveries track. You know, every year TCM consecrates certain films, the lesser known ones that are having a moment that they're trying to put out there more as discoveries. And Nunchal Escape is a fascinating film in that it was made in 1944, so before World War II was over, and yet it anticipates the Nuremberg trials in that it shows uh, a Nazi war criminal being held accountable uh, by an international court for what he's done. And it's told in the series of uh, flashbacks. It's a very dark film, um, but it's a film that she says she was very proud to have been a part of because of its its role in history and the way it, it examines the pathology of how somebody becomes a fascist, becomes capable of committing such unspeakable deeds. So it was it was ma- marvelous to see Marsha Hunt there. I also got to see her a second time at an unofficial TCM event that was at the Larry Edmonds bookstore, where she talked a little bit longer about her life and career and a little bit about the blacklist and things like that. Um, I also got to see Nancy Olson, who was there to introduce Sunset Boulevard. She was Amazing. She had some great stories to tell about Billy Wilder using her as the inspiration for Betty Schaefer. You know, watch that role and you just think it fits her like a glove. And indeed, it was made to fit her like a glove. She describes herself as being a, on the outside of what a starlet was. You know, here she was this college kid who was known as Wholesome Olsen even at college. So it was. <laughs> Must have been a bit of a trip to see somebody like her on the Paramount lot. And Billy Wilder was kind of fascinated by her and would, you know, always ask questions about her coursework and what she was doing and what she wanted out of life and that kind of thing. And, and created this character as somebody who, who does stick out very powerfully from the tawdry Hollywood milieu. And she says she even wore her own clothes for that film that, it, you know, Edith had come up with these designs and she and Billy Wilder would look at them and kind of shake their head and feel like it just wasn't quite right. I, I guess it must have been a little too polished, a little too manicured for this girl who's supposed to be this, this reader. So she basically, Billy Wilder said, I like your own clothes. Just, just you choose them. You, you pick out what you want to wear and just wear them, wear what you want to wear as, as a character. Um, so I, I had never known that before. I think her, her genuineness and her non-moviness is a big part of what makes that character believable because she is almost too sweet. Um, but if, if it wasn't so, she would be almost too sweet if it wasn't so grounded in, in reality, I think. Yeah. Although she had a really interesting thing that, that I'd never thought about before with that film was that she said everybody in this, Billy Wilder wanted to make a point that everybody in this film is an opportunist, including Betty Schaefer. She, her, her brand of opportunism is obviously a bit sweeter and less exploitative than many of the other characters in the film, but she, she latches herself onto Joe Gillis because she wants to learn from him. She wants to be a writer. She's, you know, she's using his story. She's, you know, benefiting from him in that way, which I thought was an interesting angle on it that I had never considered before. So she's the Ann Baxter to his Betty Davis then. In a way she is. She, I mean, she does kind of Eve Harrington him right out of his story. You know, she, she disses him in front of the producer, loses him the job. If, you know, if she spoke up a word from him, you have to wonder would that conversation have gone differently. And then in the end, he's dead and she's got the screenplay, doesn't she? Yeah. <laughs> maybe she, maybe she's the criminal mastermind of Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Yeah. She was good to hear talk. The, the one who had the most exuberant personality of all the ones I saw was Ruta Lee, who is, has a very small but pivotal part in Witness for the Prosecution, which I was surprised by how many people had never seen Witness for the Prosecution before, I have to say. And and it was a joy to be at that screening because of all the gasps at the end. <laughs> I I would never in a million years have thought so many people who went to the TCM Film Festival hadn't seen that. That 
that's there's no shame in that. There are so many classic movies for us all to see, but I just would have assumed that more people who had chosen that screening would have seen that film. But there were a lot of gasps and gasps on top of gasps in that wonderful third act. So she she didn't give any spoilers just in case, but she was uh, Rudely was telling us about again about Billy Wilder and especially about Marlena Dietrich, who did not like her very much. When she auditioned, Rudely was still blonde, and Dietrich was going, she's blonde, I don't like it, she's blonde. <laughs> so Rudely, you know, feeling, didn't, worrying that her, her threat and her, her, her position as a threat to Dietrich might be a problem, she dyed her hair brunette, which is perfect for the film. And she remembers Dietrich lighting her own scenes and, you know, giving very specific instructions to the cameraman saying, I'd like a little light right here and I'd like a little light right here. And they'd say, Marlena, we don't have that light. And she'd say, don't worry, darling, I do. And she'd <laughs> pull out this trunk of lighting equipment that she carried with her. I just love that story. I, I tend to really like the stories where you find that some of these, you know, how the extent to which the actors were in, it were craftsmen. I mean, I, I think something that is, perhaps not so apparent these days, we think of actors just acting, you know, they walk on, they'd say their lines and they go home. But so many of them knew the medium just as well as the people who were directing it, or sometimes even the ones who were shooting it, they, they had to, you know, they, they'd had such long careers and to stay on top of it, they, they were technical experts as well as, you know, dramatic experts, which is always uh, an affirming thing to hear from the TCM film festival. You hear that behind the scenes stuff. That's, so valuable to those of us who've been watching these films and wondering exactly what was going on behind the scenes for so many years. I mean, something that was interesting about this year's film festival is that I, I feel like TCM does a good job of trying to make it as diverse as possible. You know, we think about classic Hollywood being such a white man dominated era, but I, you know, it's, it's always impressive first off how TCM can bring out the more subversive, sides of Hollywood, the ways in which it was going against the narrative that might have been the, the socially dominant one at the time, and also how TCM brings in guests that are, are, you know, showing how alternatives to that, like, for instance, there was Melvin Van Peebles this year there to talk about Sweet Sweetback's badass song. There was Jillian Armstrong there. And, and even, you know, even within the classic era, like they showed Finishing School, which is a film that I unfortunately did not get to see there. But I'm so glad that so many people did, because here it is co-directed by Wanda Tuchok, and it's a delicious female ensemble film that looks at, uh, you know, unwed pregnancy, looks at class issues. It's a film that is very enjoyable while looking at some deep social problems and, and you know, very scandalous material for, for the era. And I, I was pleased that they showed that. Uh, that's one that I think is definitely ripe for rediscovery. Um, yeah, I think that was, I mean, Romeo and Juliet was great too. It was, that was surely the one with well, no, it wasn't the one with the most guests. I guess Animal House was the one with the most guests. But it was great to, hear, to see those three, to see Michael York, Leonard Whiting, and Olivia Hussey all reunited and telling stories. They were just absolutely adorable together. That was a very moving reunion. It's always exciting when a film festival can do something and like engineer a reunion like that. Like I know for the odd couple, they had the Pigeon Sisters who... <laughs> um, who hadn't, the, one of them had been the maid of honor at the other's wedding, but apparently they hadn't seen each other for 19 years until they, they came together again for that festival. So it's, it's charming to see the ways in which TCM can create those moving experiences. You get the feeling they're not just moving for the people who are there, that they are genuinely moving for the people who appeared in these films. Watching A Star is Born and Sunset Boulevard are both films about stars who 
fall out of the public gaze and suffer for that, whose, whose lives are in many ways ruined, who feel damaged and discarded by the system that made them stars, who feel like the public has turned their backs on them and it, it destroys them. And it made me very sad to watch both of those films at the TCM Classic Film Festival because I was thinking, boy, if only they could have just held on a little longer, if they could have held on a few decades. Celebrated, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Norma Desmond, if Norma Desmond showed up at TCM Film Festival, everybody would know who she was, you know, or those, those comparable figures. So it's it was an interesting experience in thinking about how disposable these films and these people were seen as in their own time and yet how they have endured and continued to be cherished now i i it's, it's sad to think of all the people who didn't live long enough to find that out but it's always very moving to see many people there who seem genuinely surprised at how much all of us know their films and love their films and are happy to see them Ben Modell, film accompanist and DVD Kickstarter maven, was at the TCM Film Festival this year to help give attendees a taste of another event that we've talked about here, Mostly Lost, the workshop for identifying orphan films held every June at the Library of Congress. As part of it, he also gave a presentation on the use of undercranking in silent film. That's not all he's up to right now, but we'll start there. The whole idea was that uh, they wanted to do a program at Club TCM uh, focusing on mostly lost. And as as the discussion percolated, uh, the idea was to uh, include one of the presentations that had been done at mostly lost. And uh, the undercranking talk that I had done some years ago was was suggested. Uh, the TCM festival was bringing thinking about bringing me out to play for something anyway. So as long as I was going to be in the neighborhood, it just it just kind of it just kind of fit. It, I mean, the last time I played at the festival was in 2011. It's the festival's second year, and every year, like clockwork, as soon as I hear what the theme is, I pitch a few things, and um, they didn't really uh, go for uh, uh, how Molly Malone made good, although it is about a, a writer and uh, a, w a woman in the lead. And I may have suggested something else, uh, but uh, when they, they said they were going to show, run show people, I was thrilled because what I heard is that they never shown, uh, this is really the first time they ever showed a Marion Davies film. Plus the film has nothing to do with the theme of the festival. So I, I thought, well, okay, great. <laughs> so, but the main thing is that a lot of people got to get a, get a chance to see, not only see what Mostly Lost was about, but, but what Rob Stone and Rachel Delgadio put together in their presentation included a clip um, that the people at Club TCM got to try and identify. And and uh, having been explained, uh, here's what to look for. Here's the kind of things we look for. We look for, you know, things on screen and calendars and license plates and the kinds of costuming and all that kind of stuff. They, that, they all got a, a quick Mostly lost 101, okay? And here's a, a clip. I mean, they didn't tell them. Here's a clip that stumped the audience and mostly lost last year, um, which is what was shown, a clip from a unicorn uh, re-release. Um, but it, it went over really well, and I think people got a, a sense of the flavor, and people called out things, and Rob was out in the audience with a handheld mic uh, taking suggestions from people and repeating them to Rachel, who was writing things down. And... Uh, so it was it was a lot of fun. And then the second half of the presentation was my uh, my undercranking talk. You know, I'll, I'll link to what, you know, the videos that you've put up on YouTube. But for people who don't know what this is, just explain the basics of what you're talking about here. 
Okay, well, the the bottom line is that is that there's a reason that silent film looks the way it does, in terms of the fact that it's run, it's film running faster than the speed it was shot at, and yet it doesn't look like film running too fast, and that's because the people making the films knew the films were being shown faster and adjusted the way they moved, and the comedians and action stars took this this concept and, and actually kind of when they ran with it and went up de- de- developing an ability to create gags that you can't do in real life. I'm still, there's, there's some things I found as documentary evidence that absolutely proves it. And there's some things I'm still, I'm still looking, looking to find. Uh, there's uh, on my blog, I, I posted uh, a quote uh, from uh, an article that Milton Sills wrote on screen acting in 1928, where he, he says, this is how it's done. It's shot. Everything is shot at this speed. Everything is projected at that speed, which is a kind of an over, oversimplification. But he says you have to adjust the way you move, and he describes that uh, that technique of not just moving slowly, but how only one thing and one thing only can be done at a time. That, that's the basic thing: is that yes, silent films. It's supposed to be run faster, but you have to adjust the way you move, and it's something that nobody. How did we miss this? You know, <laughs> um, it's weird. And and I actually, uh, some years ago, in doing research, I asked, I wrote to Kevin Brown, and I said, when you were interviewing all these people uh, for for the parades going by, did any did everybody just talk about this? He said, no. It was just that's the other thing that's so fascinating is that it was so common and so commonplace and so matter of fact that nobody ever talked about it, and it. And so you'd think, oh, well, maybe they never did it. And it's not in any of the acting. You know, those, there's a whole bunch of books uh, on how to act for the moving pictures on, that are now available on Media History Digital Library. And um, I, I don't think they all talk about acting naturally. They don't say anything about this technique. But yet, if you take silent movies, uh, uh, dra- both dramatic and comedy, and you slow them down to the speed they were shot at, they're just. Uh, especially the comedy and actually actually films they're, they're, they're no longer funny they no longer have any uh uh energy and the the, the dramas you you can really see them uh put in extra pauses and move slowly so because the the flip side is the thing that i've discovered in the last couple of years again because of lantern and media history digital library every once in a while because more and more stuff comes online i'll do a search for the words in quotes uh, feet per minute or minutes per reel and more stuff will come up. And I have found evidence that films were being run at 28 to 30 frames per second in 1926 and 1927. So if you think 24 is really fast, think again. Yeah. <laughs> One of the first pieces of, of information I, I had gotten that was uh, in print was something that Kevin Brownlow had sent me, which you, everybody can now look up. Uh, through Lantern is there's an article in Variety in 1927 where Myrna went to a, a big theater in Times Square uh, to see uh, Sunrise and was outraged that the film was being shown at 90 feet a minute or 24 frames per second because he had t- he had you know he wired William Fox and insisted it be run at 100 feet a minute or 27 frames per second and I did I did a show about a year ago at the Cinema Arts Center and we deliberately booked a print. They said the the studio said, "No, we have a nice DCP." And we said, "No, we want the print." And we ran it at 27 frames per second. And you know what? Murnau was right. There are certain things in it uh that that land that, that used to look almost uh, like slow motion that land better. The difference between the city and country 
city stuff. The city stuff is heavily under, much more undercranked, and it has this, this crazy uh, frenetic energy that that it 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 just lands better at a faster speed. But but uh, th- this was not unusual uh, to see something run at twenty seven or twenty eight, twenty nine frames per second by the in the late twenties. And it's not just a matter of like comedians being sort of more fleet of foot, but it's it's also in the dramatic films. What's the effect in the dramatic films? Well, the, the dramatic films, it's 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 less pronounced, because um, they're certainly cranking faster. They're cranking at least by the end of the twenties to to deal with it. They're running, they're cranking at twenty or twenty two frames per second um, for certain scenes, like a close up of John Gilbert and Greta Garbo. You're going to crank a lot closer to projection speed, uh, but a shot of uh, a wide shot of of horses racing through the desert, you might be cranking it at eighteen or something like that. The bottom line is that it was it was absolutely part of the language. Um, it was you were nothing was ever really shown at, at quote unquote natural speed. And the thing I'm trying to prove, and I haven't found evidence of it yet, is but it's it's one of these things that where I started, like where I started, where I can't think of any other reason, which is that the the term silent speed being equated for sixteen with sixteen or eighteen frames per second is that. In the early 30s, 16 millimeter projectors that people had in their houses and classrooms now had to run at quote unquote sound speed, but you also needed to be able to run your home movies on them. Your home movies were silent and they ran at 16 or 18 frames per second. So you had this switch that said silent or sound. Home movie projectors that were sold in the 1920s all have a rheostat on them. Why would they put a rheostat on them? Not to me, because, oh, yes. Everybody should ha- make their home movies look silly. It was because you were renting films from the show, Universal Show at Home Library and the Kodoscope Library and the Ideal Film Library, which would be run faster than 16 or 18 frames per second at a variety of speeds. Well, and it would also make sense that for home use, to be a little more economical, you'd run it at a, at a slower speed and then you'd get, I don't know, three and a half minutes on a reel of film instead of two and a half minutes or something like that. Yeah. Like with 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 home yeah the, with home movies the whole idea was to give the home filmmaker the maximum amount that they could squeeze into that hundred feet but but it was absolutely part of the language and the the plus side especially if you're making a serial or a, a western or a comedy is that there are physical actions that you can do that are cannot be uh, done in real life that you can uh, do if you choreograph them a certain way carefully at a certain speed and shoot them at a specific speed, a specific frame rate. Uh, and I've done tests with uh, friends of mine from the circus and, and clown uh, world here in New York city where uh, with an app, you can watch the stuff speed up, sped up right away uh, with a pro, uh, an app called filmic pro. And we've, we've actually made this magic happen uh, at an, at something called the New York uh, physical comedy uh, lab that meets every Tuesday. And we will shoot something where we'll move a certain way, cranking at a certain speed and we'll watch it back. And it all of a sudden becomes a gag. Now it's not funny because it's fast, like with Benny Hill or the way Richard Lester would, would undercrank stuff. And it's just the silliness of the speed, but we've created something, um, the way sleight of hand works. If you take uh, a magic illusion and, perform it slower oh well then you can completely see what's happening yeah well and it's interesting because that gracefulness and that humor is so essential to many of the 
best remembered personalities. I mean, Buster Keaton has this sort of unnatural harmony with the universe. Douglas Fairbanks yeah. has this buoyancy and joie de vivre and it all you know it, it it all has one of its roots in the fact that they're just a little better than humans you know yes exactly no exactly there 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 there's these this superhero kind of persona it comes from this this speed and the absence of sound and we'll buy the other byproduct of it is that as an audience we'll buy anything we see as soon as you are uh uh, watching something that is shot at the same speed we're we're looking at it, it's grounded in reality, and the expectation of reality changes. Whereas something that's running faster, and uh, you know, especially like Fairbanks is an excellent example because there's you know he just bounces all over the place in a lot of these films, and it, it's not it's it, there's this combination of yes, they measured how high he could jump and built the tables and windowsills a couple inches shorter than that. But there's a, a, a grace and, and a snap to his movements that it's part of that movement and it's absolutely part of the language. They all, but the thing is, that they all, everybody in pictures knew about it. Well, let's uh, let's go to another uh, subject having to do with silent comedy, and mm-hmm. that is Alice Howell. I talked with Steve Massa on an episode a while back about uh, women comedians, and this yeah. is kind of the first outgrowth of that in home video, which is you started out doing a one-disc set of Alice Howell comedies as a Kickstarter, and tell me about that. Yeah. Well, the, the you know the thing about Alice Howell's films is that they're you know uh, most of them are lost. Steve has an exact tally, but uh, out of 75 or so films that she starred in over 10 or 11 years, there's like 22 that survive and 11 or 12 of them are at the Library of Congress. And so the idea was, let's let's uh, put out a DVD of her films because they deserve to be seen. She, she was a big star. Um, she she worked constantly at, during a time when, you know, while, we, while most people, when you think of female silent comedy, uh, you think of Mabel Norman. But during this time, most of it, uh, Mabel was in these features at Goldwyn, and there were a couple of features that Senate made, like there's the, the Extra Girl and, and stuff like that. But she had moved past and moved out of doing comedy shorts, and Alice Howell was still making just constantly on screen, starring in comedy shorts. And uh, they're they're just they, while the ones that survive, they basically the ones that survive are at film archives. So if you want to see Alice Howell comedies, you got to go to the Library of Congress or MoMA or UCLA or iFilm or whoever has a couple of her films, but there are quite a number of them at the Library of Congress. The idea is, well, you can fit six of them on a DVD, but the Kickstarter was funded in eight hours. So, okay, let's keep going. So the offer in the Kickstarter was for $25, you get a DVD, six Alice, Alice Howell shorts that you would play the music for. Yeah. And... So in eight hours, the you know the the number that make it a viable project was yeah. sold, and then then what happened? Well, then what happened? We went to the next the next level, and and you weren't just getting a DVD uh, with these films on it with with good transfers and good scores, but you were participating in helping uh, cover the production costs for something that was going to be released to the public. So it wasn't something that you were going to get, and that's it. This is something that everyone on on uh, on Earth, with uh, internet access to Amazon, could purchase if they were interested. So basically, what happened is that it kept, the funding kept going, and luckily, 
uh, as opposed to Marcel Perez, where every every time a, a film turns up, we throw confetti. We already had, you know, eleven or twelve films uh, with Alice Howell. So uh, the next thing that happened was like, oh well, let's see if we can get enough backers to make this a two disc set, and that only took about four days. Um, so we we hit that that uh, target, and then so now when we're recording this, we're past that goal. And where we're at now is trying to reach 340 backers. And with 340 backers, that means that they'll be funding to cover uh, digital cleanup and state of stabilization uh, of, of the films. And some of them really need it. And some of them maybe a little a little less so. But uh, what, what's what's er, uh, anybody who pledges for at any level, whether it's the the five or ten bucks or or twenty five or thirty five all the way up, if, and if you have deep pockets and want to drop 10 grand in there that's super well uh i don't know what we'll do with that but <laughs> the thing is that uh if you make a pledge and when the pledges are accepted through may through midnight on may 8th is is that you're helping um bring alice howell back to the public eye um nobody knows about her and like i said she made comedy shorts steadily for 11 years uh and 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 because she uh, as Steve has point, Steve Mass has pointed out, there's a lot of other uh, female comedians who made comedy shorts where a lot of the humor was from the fact that they were women, and, and they would play a sheriff, or they would play a tomboy character. There's this wink, wink, elbows out thing of it's a woman, but she's kind of acting in a masculine role. Whereas Alice Howell didn't do that quite as much. She did slapstick and the pratfalls, and she did all this kind of stuff. She's almost like the Lucille Ball of silent comedy. All right, so people who hear this, it will have already passed the deadline for the Kickstarter. So then uh, what? Um, yeah, so I know. Then what? Next, the yeah. next one, we actually have to coordinate this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, well, well, who who knew this thing was going to get, you know, like I said, the, the first disc, the first goal was hitting eight hours. Which which happened with with uh, Marion Davies two years ago, but Marion Davies everybody's heard of. Her. I mean, the next thing you can do is you know I I have projects, other projects that that percolate and happen, and um you know you can sign up for my emails if you go to silentfilmmusic.com and literally if you sign up for my emails you uh, when you when you click on your, the confirmation link that's sent to you you'll be sent to a secret website and you'll get to watch a rare comedy short from my collection that is not on DVD, it's not online. Um, as a thank you for signing up. And then you'll get uh, w once or twice or three times a month, you'll get an email from me about not only shows that I'm doing, but any anything, any other upcoming projects so you don't miss out on any uh, any of the Kickstarter kind of things that I'm, that I'm doing. But if people down the road, they'll be able to buy this at Amazon? No, absolutely. I mean, ev everything that I produce is not just something for the backers. Uh, the idea for on all of my DVDs going all the way back to the first accidentally preserved disc is that um, yeah, the backers will get a copy and they'll get it before it goes on sale. Um, but it, everything I do is released on Amazon and I'm working on something currently uh, where hopefully it'll be available on other websites like shoptcm.com and Barnes and Noble, but that's still a, a, a that's still in the works, and I'll have more information as that becomes more more solidified. One of the projects that is is definitely on on the, in the planning stages and will ideally be out sometime this summer is a disc I've been working on with with the Library of Congress, where I'm basically releasing something that they've restored, which is a disc 
of restored kinetophone films. And these are sound, sound films made in 1913 by the Thomas Edison Company uh, using a very complicated system uh, of pulleys and levers between a projector and in the back of the room and a cylinder machine in the front of the theater, which, believe it or not, didn't really work all that well. Um, <laughs> And the, but the restorations that, that the Library of Congress has done uh, working with the Thomas Edison Museum uh, on, on, uh, on these films, it, they've used 21st century digital technology to make these films work. There are very few of the kinetophone films where both the cylinders and the film elements exist. And the film elements have been scanned. Uh, in some cases, they had camera negative. In some cases, they did not. And and also, a, 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 each of the uh, cylinders was digitized, and a lot of work was done on them. And uh, they've been synced up, and they look better and sound better than they did in 1913. But you're going to get to see um, uh, some films like Nursery Rhymes, which people have maybe bought a print from Blackhawk or something like that, looking... Uh, uh, better than you could possibly imagine it would have uh, the film Jack's joke with Arthur Hausman and a few others. And that's something I'm, I'm working on uh, where the restorations are done. I'm just trying to work on putting the finishing touches on uh, an extra, which is a, a video version of the, the, uh, the talk that George Williman has given at a number of places uh, when showing these films with in, uh, behind the scenes photographs. Well, you know, I actually saw some of those at Capitol Fest with George Willem. Oh, yes, right. Doing, doing it. And they're really interesting. I mean, we all know what early sound films look like. You know, we've seen, you know, the late 20s. We've seen some things a little earlier than that with Eddie Cantor or whoever. This right. is 1913, and it's just kind of ghostly. There, there. It's just you know you're really looking into the past and then hearing voices coming from it. Yeah, they're they're really amazing, and I'm really happy to be able to be uh, able to get this stuff out to the general public. There will be lots of links about what you've just heard about in the show post at nitrateville.com. For Nora Fiore, I'll have links to the Nitrate Diva blog and Twitter account. There are lots of fun pictures of the TCM Film Festival on the latter in particular. For Ben Modell, I'll have one of his videos about undercranking, as well as links to his label, Undercrank Productions, where you can sign up for his emails. The Kickstarter for his Alice Howell set is over, but you'll be able to order it eventually at Amazon. And of course, the emails will alert you to the next one, as will Hanging Around Nitrateville, of course. Anyway, you'll find all the links that's fit to link in the show post at nitrateville.com, as well as a link to leave us a rating and a review at iTunes. If you like the show, please take a moment to do that, as it helps make us more visible for other people looking for an old movie podcast. Thanks. Well, there goes the maiden's prayer. I wonder how I'll act. It's like diving overboard. You never know how the water's going to be till you hit it. So nervous. Say, if I could look like you in a wedding gown, I'd be a bigamist.
Sometimes we feel like we've seen everything, or at least had the chance to see everything that old Hollywood made. But the reality is that certain studio vaults are open to us, Warner's and MGM on Turner Classic Movies in particular, and others can be very hard to see even now. One of those is Fox, from the William Fox period before 20th century took it over. The Museum of Modern Art's William Fox Presents Restorations and Rediscoveries from the Fox Film Corporation, running May 18th to June 5th in New York, presents 31 late silent and early sound Fox films, most in new restorations that show what an interesting director-driven studio Fox was from 1926 to 1935. I spoke with Dave Kerr, curator for the Department of Film at MoMA, about the studio in this era. Well, let's talk about Fox at this time period that the retrospective pretty much covers, which is uh, the tail end of silence and sound through the sale of the studio to Daryl Zanuck when it essentially stopped being William Fox's Fox. Um, mm -hmm. So what's, the, what's happening in the time period at Fox here? There's actually a great new biography of Fox out very detailed, going into all of his financial problems, you know, way over my head at times. But <laughs> basically, in 1929, he decided he was going to buy Lowe's, which meant all the Lowe's theaters, or Lowe's, as they say in New York, uh, and MGM, which was a subset of, of Lowe's. Uh, and he borrowed money to do it, and he then ran into a major stock market crash, he then had an automobile accident that laid him up for many months. And then he got into this financial battle, basically with the people who had been backing him for Movie Tone, the telephone company, which you don't mess around with. Uh, and it just turns into this nightmare. Uh, people calling in loans, uh, you know, betraying his trust, his guy at the Justice Department, who assured him that it wasn't going to be a problem with the antitrust suit, suddenly is gone. And the new guy says, it's a problem. So everything just comes crashing down on this guy. And within a year, he's pretty much lost control of the company. It, uh, from 1930 on, it goes into the hands of various receivers, Sleazy guys from Wall Street, a big Chicago utilities magnate who had no reason getting involved in this. Uh, it's just this nightmare scenario of, you know, capitalism in a freeding frenzy, you know, just pointless destruction of this company. Somehow it keeps going, though. Uh, and by that point, you know, they had this astoundingly great lineup of filmmakers at the company. And they more or less kept backing them uh, up to 1935 when finally it's just, it's ready to fall over and uh, they merge it with, uh, you know, Daryl Zanuck's upstart 20th century company. It's a bit mysterious to me just how the studio manages to continue to be so creative and so supportive of this great group of filmmakers through that period, even though their budgets are being slashed left and right. Uh, but it happens. Yeah, I thought that was that was really interesting. That it's one thing that he's bringing in people like F. W. Murnau in the fat years before the Wall Street crash, 
but it's another that it's still a fairly arty studio uh after you know it's it's hit these problems budgets are tighter if you look at Borzegi's early sound films they're obviously shot on smaller budgets than Seventh mm-hmm. Heaven was and yet they're still pretty pretty adventurous visually oh yeah and then he's you know supporting somebody like William K Howard who's this this radical experimentalist uh I can't imagine any other studio backing that stuff, and yet I'm not even sure who at Fox was backing it. Was it Sheehan, <laughs> who seems to have been kind of a you know, pretty conservative guy? Was it Saul Wurzel, who was running their, their B operation? Very mysterious, you know, and really no clues in that massive new book about you know, who, was, who was actually making these decisions at the studio. You know, so my, my fantasy is that you know, the filmmakers took over. Uh, <laughs> They, it's the only studio I know of where they identified their stills by the name of the director uh, and the year of the making and which number production that was that year. So I'm looking at a still right now for The Brat, which is a John Ford film, which is labeled Ford-33-44. I mean, I think that gives you an idea of just how much importance they accorded to the, the directors there. You know, certainly nothing like that would have been happening at MGM or, or Warner Brothers. Uh, it really was the director's studio. Hmm. The evidence of the surface, uh, you know, they got to do a lot of amazing stuff, you know, straight through. Well, let's talk about, uh, let's start with Borzaghi. I mean, he was he was one of the prestige directors of the late silent and early sound period. At one point, uh, hadn't he won uh, 40% of the Best Director at Oscars because he yeah. won two of the first five? <laughs> um, right. So... Yeah. You've got a new version of Seventh Heaven, his biggest uh, silent hit, and and really a film. I mean, I saw it once here in Chicago with organ accompaniment to a full house at an old movie theater, and I don't think I've had an experience comparable to that for just watching a whole Uh audience be swept away by the power Uh, of silent film. Uh, You've got a a kind of new version of of Seventh Heaven? Yeah. Well, just to give you a little background on that... Um, as you probably know, uh, all of the Fox film negatives, literally all of them, went up in a vault fire in 1937. And a lot of the show prints went up in that same fire. What survives is 90% comes from, uh, well, the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, Eileen Bowser, who was the head of the collection in the 70s, uh, got word from a friend of hers who was a producer at Fox uh, that Fox was about to destroy all of the nitrate that was still remaining at the studio. So work prints, show prints, reference prints, uh, they were all just going to take them out and trash them because the insurance company wasn't going to uh, uh, renew their policy unless they got rid of this stuff. So Eileen goes in and basically gets it all out and we keep a lot of it at MoMA. Other stuff goes to Eastman House. Other stuff goes to UCLA. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know, MoMA got first pick, of course. So we have the only copies, really the only copies at all, of those important Borzegis, those important Fords. Uh, and it's been a big part of the museum's legacy all these years is protecting those films and restoring them and trying to get them back in circulation. Uh, we've worked 
with Fox on a lot of these uh, since they had a pretty major change of heart and they actually want these movies as part of their their legacy now. And uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, Fox agreed to do some new scans directly from our nitrate that had survived on these. So we're skipping right over the preservation work that was so painstakingly done for all these years, going right back to those nitrate prints. And this time, you know, we're doing them uh, right. I mean, a lot of that stuff was not scanned. We didn't have scans. It was not run through a wet gate uh, uh, duplicating system in the 70s. Now we can do that. And just that one simple gesture removes so much of the scratches and the dirt and the constant rainfall in something like Seventh Heaven. It's it's never going to be perfect because the elements just don't exist. And in the case of Seventh Heaven, you know what we have is the movie tone version. Uh, there is no copy of the full frame silent version. So it's missing a little image where they had to print in the soundtrack that they put on in 1929. Uh, I'm not so sure about that, but you know, after it had already played as a silent film. And so, I mean, this is as good as it's going to get, and it is still, uh, it's not perfect, but it's a, just a gigantic improvement over you know anything you've ever seen distributed on disc, on Blu-ray, whatever, you know, it's just, it's night and day. And that's going to be true of pretty much all these new new scans that are coming down. Street Angel just looks perfect because that print was in much better condition. And yeah, and other stuff that we've, yeah, really, we really worked on. Uh, well, things like Transatlantic, well, it was a very compromised print. There really wasn't any copy of the uh, domestic negative. So we had to reassemble that from international version, French version, Spanish version, da da da, and just you know, trying to re-edit this all back into one coherent thing. So that was a lot of work. And that was supported by Film Foundation. And that just came out spectacularly. I mean, that movie is a revelation. It's it's really, uh, you know, it changes film history a little bit. It's It really has things in it that no one else was doing in 1931. Well, let's talk about that one and, and about William K. Howard. I mean, I mainly know him from kind of late 30s films, uh, things like, you know, The Squeaker, which might be the only good mm-hmm. Edgar Wallace movie ever, uh, and uh, The Princess Comes Across and things like that. And, you yeah, know, yeah. seems seems a good, capable director, but it sounds like he was something else entirely in the early sound days. Uh, and influential, it sounds like, on a Mr. Orson Welles, who would have been, I don't know, like... 16 or something then so it's a good good time yeah, to, to get influences from yeah. things like uh the power and the glory and transatlantic yeah he clearly saw power and the glory and i'm thinking he saw transatlantic because there's a lot in that that orson and greg Tolman just pick up on immediately yeah well, let's uh, talk about yeah transatlantic shot by james wong howe directed by William K. Howard, uh, everything I've seen has described it as sort of Grand Hotel on a ocean liner before Grand mm-hmm. Hotel. Um, but what's mm-hmm. what's so interesting about this film? Well, at that point, uh, Howard, who, I mean, he was just a really restlessly inventive director at that point in his career. Um, in almost every movie I've seen of his from the mid-20s to, well, when his Fox contract 
winds up in uh, 33, uh, he, it's like he poses himself another problem on every movie or finds another technique he wants to explore from super deep focus, extreme long takes, uh, stylized sets. He's, he's just thinking all the time. And there's an interview with James Wong Howe where he's asked, you know, who's the most creative director you ever worked with? And he unhesitatingly says, William K. Howard, you know, thus baffling the interviewer who's never heard of William <laughs> K. Howard. Uh, Howard's particular tragedy, he was uh, an alcoholic and a real hothead. He seems to have fought with pretty much everyone he, he worked with, except the people who were extremely loyal to him. Uh, he, um, yeah, he, um, rather foolishly accepts a contract at MGM where he is just, you know, not fitting in at all. I think because Myrna Loy brought him over because he'd given Myrna her first non-exotic role in transatlantic and she was very grateful to him. MGM doesn't work out so well. He goes to Paramount for a couple of films that doesn't work out so well. Uh, he comes back to New York and makes an independent film in 1939 called Backdoor to Heaven, which is fantastic, just brilliant. You know, clearly he's once again able to function entirely under his own power. Uh, as it happens, we have that uh, totally independently of the Fox stuff. So we have a gorgeous preservation of that film. It's PD. There's lots of crappy versions around, but you know, seeing that thing in a good print is, is just an eye-opener. It's just a great movie. And what was it made for, uh, Monogram or somebody? No, it's an independent producer. I'd have to look it up for you. He made that in one-third of a nation in 1939, distributed through Paramount. But, yeah, uh, Paramount doesn't have them. The copyrights were never renewed. Um, entirely New York production, shot in, a, in uh, the Biograph studio in the Bronx and with locations on Long Island. So you know, unusual for 1939, obviously. Uh, I think Richard Kozarski says those were the last independent features made in New York until uh, the 1950s. Hmm. Yeah, he keeps drinking. Anyway, he ends up, he's back at Warner Brothers. He fights with everybody there. He he was assigned to New Rock, the All-American, and apparently had a fight with uh, the studio because he wanted to make Newt Rockney a Catholic. Uh, which, of course, he wasn't. Yes. <laughs> so he finishes out his Warner contract with a couple of B pictures, both of which are pretty good. And then it's, you know, Monogram, Republic, PRC, dead. Uh, boom. And totally forgotten by 1951 when he dies. No one has any idea who this guy is. And as it so often happens with people who only have half a career, um, he's forgotten. Yeah, just really not known to film history. Because his best stuff was at Fox, and that best stuff has just not been available for a long, long time. So, yeah, very satisfying to me, particularly to bring back uh, uh, William K. Howard stuff. Well, let's talk about some of the other, uh, some of the other arty people working there. The one that was really interesting to me: you're showing a film called Caravan, directed directed by Eric Charel, who I had never heard of, though I realized when I looked him up. He did a film that was a, a big international hit oh, yeah. in the early sound period called The Congress Dances. And Fox mm -hmm. actually brought uh, Cheryl over to make his only American film, and it brought Lillian Harvey, the star of The Congress Dances, to, uh, to make films at Fox as well. Yeah, as, as well as the art director and the composer. 
So Fox basically brought over the major talent of the Weimar musical with the expectation that Americans would love Weimar musicals. And <laughs> to no one's surprise, uh, they didn't. <laughs> Caravan was a big flop, and they uh, uh, canceled uh, Cheryl's contract. But the film is terrific. Again, it just went into complete obscurity instantly. But it's like Lubitsch directing Busby Berkeley. You know, it's just, it's this really funny, bittersweet, very politically pointed story uh, laid over these, you know, uh, big musical numbers. It's a terrific movie. Uh, if anything, it's it's a little too big for its own good, but, you know, you can see the temptation this guy would have arriving in Hollywood with, with all these resources. Again, that's, you know, something that just people have never heard of, and it's uh, it's a very solid film, and, and really, you know, it's something I like personally a lot. Anyway, they didn't also, you know, it saved a lot of people from the Nazis who were able to stay in Hollywood as a result of that. Uh, like Shirell, who spent the rest of the war in, in, uh, in the U.S., went back to Germany in the early 50s. And then Lillian Harvey ends up in a film, a very strange film, called I Am Suzanne. Mm-hmm. Also, also sort of, you know, it's like if Sally Bowles of Cabaret had made a movie, it would be I Am Suzanne, I think. That's um, good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a really weird one. Yeah, again, we, we had a, a tinted nitrate print, and as, as you know, I mean, tinting in the sound era was very problematical. They didn't do that very much. Because it could mess so up the soundtrack. Had, yeah, mm-hmm. but they went ahead and did it, and we recreated the tents in the new, the new version. It's a strange movie. I do not know how to describe it. Yeah, anything. It, it seems to me that any movie in which the uh, the main characters have puppet, uh, you know, sort of shadow characters, <laughs> is just asking yeah. for trouble at the box office. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, and I'm pretty sure it encountered. Uh, Serious resistance. <laughs> now, there's another film that uh, you're showing that uh, comes from someone who's usually thought of as sort of a pretty, pretty steady sort, Henry King. Um, but mm-hmm. this, it's this very nice little fable called One More Spring. Oh, yeah. Well, it's kind of a labor of love for me. It's uh, one of the very last Fox films from 1935. And it's you know, two of the great Fox stalwarts, Janet Gaynor and Warner Baxter, you know, Two people who are probably not as well-known today as they should be because the Fox films have been out of circulation for so long. It's this lovely little uh, depression fable made on the tiniest budget imaginable. I think there are maybe two sets in the thing. Uh, It just has a lovely sweet tone. It's Capra-esque, but not pushy, not sentimental. It reminds me of some of the popular front films that were coming out in France at that point. It has a greater sense of brotherhood between a range of classes. There's one character who is clearly a Jewish refugee from Hitler at a time when we weren't speaking about things like that in American movies. In a film that meant a lot to Henry King, I found an interview he'd given to the Times in which he said it's it's his best film. And in a way, yeah, I, I don't disagree. Um, that's one we had... Only known print was a nitrate that was so badly scratched that the and into the soundtrack it was just hopeless. Uh, there are a couple of bootlegs made from that print floating around. You may have seen one of those that are just 
it, it's all but unwatchable. And again, you know, working with uh, this, these new digital tools, uh, able to bring it back to an amazing degree, solve the out-of-sync sound, removed almost all of these huge gouges, not even scratches. Uh, I would say it's 95% there. I mean, you can there are sections you can tell have had some work, but it is just astounding how, how good a quality we were able to get out of that very, very badly damaged print. Now, you said that... Um... You know, it was really a director's studio at this point. Um, and a lot of people got their early starts there. Howard Hawks being an mm-hmm. obvious one. John Ford worked his way up through there. Alan Dwan. Well, in the case of Ford, it was uh, it does seem to have been William Fox who chose him to direct The Iron Horse, which was going to be Fox's big attempt to show he could compete with Paramount, specifically with The Covered Wagon, you know, and to make a big national epic. Uh, Ford had been working at Fox for four years by then and was turning out a pretty steady stream of creative and interesting movies. And uh, Fox thought he was the guy to you know, take on this big project. And indeed he was. Uh, the film was just a massive success. And immediately you know, Ford became the A director at Fox. He was always the highest paid director during this time there. And as near as I can tell, had a, 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 from that point on a pretty clear hand and choice of projects. We're showing a couple earlier things by him. Uh, actually, they're not in this part of the show. Uh, Shamrock Handicap, uh, a couple other the pre-Iron Horse things, um, which you see Ford you know, working under with material that clearly he would not have chosen for himself. But otherwise, he seems to have a pretty clear hand uh, in working there. The interesting one... From a preservation point of view, is the Brat, which is a 1931 film. Uh, this was the last sound forward that existed, but had not been restored. So again, it was horribly compromised source material. Thanks to the genius of Peter Williamson, our chief preservation guy, uh, it it's again emerged as something very nearly perfect now. And it's it's a little film, but it's a very interesting film and very personal in a lot of ways. Uh, I think it'll surprise a lot of people. Now, Hawks, on the other hand, I mean, these are very early works of his. You have his second mm-hmm. film, Fig Leaves, which is the oldest surviving one, and Fazil, which tries to make mm-hmm. Charles Farrell into Rudolph Valentino, basically. <laughs> um, right. And it's hard not to think that Fox, that Hawks must not have looked back at that stuff and gone, yeah, that's everything I was trying to get away from. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, these are definitely early works. He, yeah, he was just starting out. He'd, he'd written a couple of things by that point. I think he was looking for a style. And uh, you can see him, lots of Murnau influence, lots of Sternberg influence, I think. Uh, not at all that we associate with the later Hawks, you, you can still see some of that early expressionist uh, uh, impulse in him in uh, Scarface, which has you know, a, a lot of Weimar-esque uh, lighting and a couple of really spectacular camera movements, you know, things he would never do later. But that's the kind of stuff he's messing around with in the Fox films. He's kind of looking for himself. Uh, hasn't quite found it yet. One we don't have is uh, Girl in Every Port. That one went to Eastman House because they had a thing for Louise Brooks up there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that one is, uh, 
that's, you know, he's on track there. He's really found himself by that point. Uh, not that he sticks with it. He does a few more turkeys, not turkeys. I mean, uh, minor films at Fox uh, before he really, yeah, merges with Scarface in 32. Although, you know, you talk about him being expressionist, and I think, I, I watched Only Angels Have Wings recently, and there's just like mm-hmm. one scene that really takes place outdoors in regular sunlight, and it mm-hmm. seems so pedestrian compared to the rest of the movie, which is this beautiful, you know, black yeah. night uh, setting with mm-hmm. the silvery King Kong-like fog coming out of the jungle and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, such oh, a yeah. stylized film. Oh, yeah. No, it's clear. He, he could do that stuff if he wanted to, you know, and then he chose not to, which is, which is interesting. Uh, now, what about um, Raoul Walsh? I mean, Walsh was probably a, a bigger director earlier than either Ford or Hawks, mm-hmm. uh, but pretty oh, comparable, yeah. comparable uh, in terms of the time frame. To me, Walsh's great period comes like at the end of the 30s through the mid-40s at Warner Brothers. I mean, I just, you know, from like Manpower, Gentleman Jim, High Sierra, all those things. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's just pretty much, he's he's the other perfect Warner Brothers director besides Cortez. Mm-hmm. Um but an important director at this time, doing a lot of his best-known work at Fox. So, what oh, yeah. are you showing of his? Well, he, uh, you know, he starts at Fox in 1915. He's right there when the company is founded. Uh, and uh, Resurrection, which you've probably seen, is one of the very few uh, pre-1920 Fox films that survives, and it is it is Walsh, and it's a pretty good movie. Regeneration. Um, I'm sorry, Regeneration, exactly. Having seen a few other movies from that period, my sense is that, you know, he was making stuff left and right. Uh, would love to see those. You know, another star who's totally unknown because of the vault fire is George Walsh, uh, Raoul's brother, who was an action star in the teens. Uh, and Raoul directed quite a few of those. Uh, not one of those exists. Not one. Uh, you can see George in our beautiful new restoration of uh, Lubitsch's Rosita coming soon to a theater near you. Uh, but that's his only silent film appearance. Uh, and then it's a similar thing. Uh, you know, Walsh, by the time of What Price Glory, I think has a big stylistic breakthrough, is another guy who starts experimenting with extreme deep focus, this very interesting sense uh of, of just constant background action, people moving in and out of the frame, vehicles crossing, uh, this kind of constant sense of hustle and bustle that it, it, it just uh, you know expands the the world of the film so much. Brilliantly in the Big Trail, which is you know we preserved in the widescreen 70 millimeter version all those years ago, uh, and then in smaller films like uh, Me and My Gal, one of my absolute favorite. Yeah. Uh, you can see the same principle operating in the foreground, you know, this wonderful ribald sense of humor that he has. Uh, just you know, these are real, these are movies that really move, you know, just the, the life in these things, they just pulse with, you know, just excitement and people and movement and crowds. And I, I, I really love them. And I love the Warner Brothers stuff too, but I think this is also a very important period for, for Walsh. Again, when he leaves Fox, it's like the air goes out of him. He goes to England for a couple of years, comes back and has to work his way up again at Paramount, making kind of you know dull stuff. And it's not until he gets hired again at, at Warner's that he 
finds his uh, his mojo again, really, and, and then he becomes the the Walsh of the Grand Period. You know, Fox is the missing chapter in so many people's careers just because it has been out of sight for so long. You know, people who think that John Ford's career began with Stagecoach, you know, I've read that constantly, or <laughs> that Ralph Walsh's career began with uh, Roaring Twenties. But, you know, there's a pretty substantial history before before that. And, you know, it's not people's fault. It's just they have not had access to these things for so long. And I hope we get back into circulation. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, it's... Fox didn't have its own films. Basically, they were they were basically stored in disarray at, at MoMA and other places. Is that why they weren't all over our TVs when we were well, growing up? I I can't explain that. I mean, they're certainly not in disarray. They were all uh, preserved, all transferred to safety, and whenever viable, uh, MoMA held on to the nitrate, which we're able to go back to in a lot of cases now. I just don't think, uh, you know, it's the fault of Fox's sales department. What can you say? They just did not realize they owned these films. At a certain point, it didn't mean anything to them that they had Warner Baxter movies. You know, right. Who cares? Sally O'Neill. They barely, they barely care about Tyrone Power at this point. And it just, they were not, uh, they were not sold to television. A lot of the, yeah, Fox pre-code stuff was never going to be on TV because there's some really raunchy stuff in there. Yeah, I just that's something I can't account for. The, the Fox just never chose to make that part of their television packages. Never chose to put much of it on DVD. They have released a handful of things, you know, all of which come from our material. But yeah, I mean, why that's not on TCM? You'll have to ask TCM. I don't know. Well, I, I have to think too. There's probably a certain feeling that their own history, there was basically sunrise and then our history begins in 1935 when Daryl Zanuck takes over. Yeah, that's absolutely right, I think, yeah. Mm. That's as far back as they want to look, because Fox was an embarrassment. You know, he ended up going to prison for bribing a judge. Uh, And he was not a, uh, you know, a proud uh, uh, forefather they uh, wanted to point to in the 40s and 50s. So he kind of got erased from the picture, I think. that That's probably part of it. And, of course, that the films were not available for so long, they're just not a part of film history. Uh, All right, so you have you have a retrospective in May, and then a, when is the second part of it happening? Well, going to take uh, several of the films to uh, Il Cima Ritrovato in Bologna in June. We're going to have... Um, Seventh Heaven on the big piazza with a new score conducted by Timothy Brock. So that'll be a nice evening. And then there are plans to bring some or all of it to UCLA in the fall. All those are still shaping up. And then next year, we're going to have a whole new batch of new scans done with Fox. And I'm hoping to do another two or three weeks here at the museum and then take highlights of that to, uh, to Bologna after that. So there's there's plenty to go around. There's certainly no shortage of of good stuff from from, uh, from this collection. One thing I've always wondered. So do you know? I mean, I'm sure Zoo in Budapest is one that you've thought about. Mm-hmm. Everything I've seen on it has always been sort of choppy, with like little clips missing in the soundtrack and things like that. Is that just the way mm-hmm. it is? That's the way it is. But we should be able to improve on that. Yeah, well, we're, you know, certainly have the soundtrack redone. That is, that's something we haven't done yet, but it's on the on the schedule to do. You know, it it was probably a, a work print with splices in it. So, 
you know, you've got to work around that. All of these things were different. Uh, you know, actually, our Sunny Side Up is nearly two hours long. You know, the film in theaters was 90 minutes. So what we have and what we restored uh, is a work print. The movie doesn't play all that well at two hours. It should have been <laughs> 90 minutes. And someday, if we ever get the funding, we'll try to reconstruct that release version. But freakishly enough, uh, you know, now you can see Sunny Side Up uh, uh, in an enhanced version that no one actually saw in, uh, right. in 1929. So what do you think people get if, if they discover this, this essentially unseen, largely unseen studio from mm. that classic era? How does that change how you view Hollywood then? Well, I think a lot of people's impression of early sound comes from Warner Brothers, from the Viaphone pictures. But once you start seeing all the Fox Movie Tone stuff, you get a very different impression of what early sound was like. Because Vitaphone meant you had a locked down camera, or often three cameras locked in these booths that couldn't move. The stuff is really stiff, really stagey. You know, and the very first shot of Sunny Side Up is this spectacular camera movement that goes on for almost an entire reel. Uh, camera bobs around. It's, it's a set that represents a, a street in the east side of New York. You bobs up to every apartment uh, window, catching little character vignettes, down to the street again, up to another window. To me, they're just showing off. They're just sticking it to Warners and saying, Yo, you guys can't do this. We can, and look how cool this is. And that becomes consistent through uh, through that early sound stuff. You know, it's it's Fox who are they're really pioneering these things. You know, William K. Howard starts doing lots of interesting work with superimpositions, with um, dual roles, uh, things that were just considered to be impossible uh, because you couldn't mix the sound, etc. But in movie tone, you could do this stuff. So it opens up a whole new sense of what uh, that period was like, I think. Yeah, it's just a much more complete picture of what was happening at that, that point in time. Thanks to my guests, Nora Fiore, Ben Modell, and Dave Kerr. Music is by Kevin McLeod. The audio clip and music for the Fox segment is from Frank Borzaghi's 1931 film Bad Girl. That's one of the few in this retrospective that's out on home video, in a very nice Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. Be sure to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, so you never miss an episode. We'll be back in a few weeks. Thanks.